Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Last Monday night, I had a treat as members of our Dawn Patrol decided to establish a new subgroup. So now I'm a subgroup of a subgroup called the Night Watch. And the idea was we'd go on a night swim from La Jolla Cove to La Jolla Shores. And so Ted, the organic chemistry professor from UCSD, had charted out when the moon would be in the perfect phase for optimal illumination and when atmospheric conditions would be in the perfect pressure so that that moonlight would filter through unimpeded. And then Bob, the Navy SEAL captain, talked to us about swim buddies and the importance of protocol when you're out in the sea with no light. What to do if you get lost? What to do if you lose somebody? And then we embarked with the stars above us and several planets with no light around us except for the glow sticks on the back of our swim goggles and the distant lights of La Jolla shores where we were headed. As I put my head underwater and I started swimming, I realized something was a little different. Every stroke, the bubbles actually illuminated like they themselves were the chemicals in the glow stick and we were actually in the midst of a bioluminescent algae bloom. And so it was like swimming in a scene from Moana. I was just waiting as I swam to look down and see the silhouette of a shark outlined in this green glow as it moved below us. That never did happen. It would have been both terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But in the sheer moment of this beauty, with all the dots of stars in the sky, with the friends around us, there was this one moment, this sobering moment, when we asked, where is so-and-so? And the time between asking that question and the calling for that friend at sea and the lack of response was deafening terror for a moment. He probably heard us after 15 seconds and we were reunited, but in that very moment we had a mixture of both beauty and terror. Because in the midst of all the goodness, one of us was lost. I don't know what it was like for him, but for us it was pandemonium. And we go back to the scripture today. Last week we looked at original blessing. A good God created a good world in all its beauty and diversity. A chorus, a symphony, resounding notes of beauty and brilliance and connection and flourishing and thriving. And that story doesn't go on for very long until the whole thing gets shattered. And the first question God asks where are you? In the midst of all this beauty, in the midst of all this brokenness, where are you? That's the question this ancient scripture asks us today. It's a picture of our world. It's a picture of our lives. Question for you is, what is your lens for viewing the world? What do you do not only with the joy of this life, but with the pain and the sorrow, the disappointment, do you have a worldview that's complex and nuanced enough to hold you, to make sense of this moment 
in your life. Today we see the scene at the heart of the Christian faith. It's this understanding that tells us about the fallen nature of the world. And scripture is brutally honest. Scripture does not present a view that says, when you are united with God, everything goes well for you from that point forward. Bad things do happen to good people, and good things do happen to bad people. This world is complex, fractured, beautifully created, and broken. And as we read on in Scripture, we hear not only an honest appraisal of where we currently stand in this world, whether it's you looking in the mirror at the disappointments in your own life or you thinking about the world right now with all its fracturedness and pain and sorrow. God not only sees it, but as we read on, God promises to do something about it. And eventually one day, as we continue reading, God indeed does. And that's the great adventure. But today, let's consider, let's dive down and dig in to what is the core of this brokenness. And what's the corruption of it? What's the result of it? And finally, what's the correction? What is God doing to renew it? First, what's at the core? And here's what I suggest. The core is that we are always enticed to believe a lie. I mean, you know this on a meta level, that currently we are this interesting stage of human development where the ability for technology and AI and messaging has gone way beyond the human brain's ability to filter it, process it, or make good decisions on it. Marketing experts know you buy on emotion and you justify later with fact, and then they filter billions of dollars toward getting you to do whatever they want. Dave Egger's latest book, I just read read a review on it, is all about what if Google and Amazon came together and they can create a perfect algorithm not only to decipher who you are but who you should become and this goad you in that direction. Now, I don't know how far off that is or if that's possible, but I know that gravitational force is always at work in your life and mine. So we're already on one level, always enticed to believe one thing or another for behavior modification. But this goes even deeper than that. The original lie. And here's where it is. Let me point it out to you. Genesis 2, verse 16, the first part that Sarah read. The Lord commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you surely will die. So God said you can eat anything you want, okay? I'm talking Whole Foods plus Costco plus whatever else. I mean, anything you want, just not from that one tree. And if you do, there's a warning. You will die. Not long thereafter, in chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent, who was more crafty than any other wild animal. By the way, as an aside, note, we talked about this last week, the genre of these early chapters of Genesis, it is not written as a history book. So do not try to take this as a science textbook, a history book. It is not... It is not concerned with telling you, as a journalist would tell you, the time, the date, the place. It, it doesn't explain exactly the why, the how. It explains the why. Okay. So, for example, the author of Genesis mysteriously is not concerned with how did the serpent get into paradise in the first place? Who let him in? It just assumes already that brokenness and fracturedness and the ability to wander are already part of the human condition, and it wants to focus on what is God doing about it. So back to that original lie. God says, if you eat of this one tree, surely you will die. And now that serpent who's so crafty in verse 4 comes and says to the woman, you will not die. 
For surely God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. There's the original lie. God says, if you eat that, you will die. Serpent says, no, you won't. In fact, God doesn't want your best for you. God knows that if you ate that fruit, you would become like God. You would become superhuman. You'd be amazing. God is holding out on you, and you can't trust God. The original lie. Underneath all the other lies. We'll unpack that. Because here's what the serpent's saying. You can't trust God. You can't trust God's love for you. You can't trust God to look out for you. You can't trust that when you can't see a way forward and things are mysterious and murky and you don't like your current circumstances, you can't trust God. Just assume that God has either abandoned you or God is playing a cruel trick on you. The original lie. The serpent says, if you obey God, he will keep you down. You'll miss out. This is the original lie that has passed into the human heart of everybody in this room and joining online. Believing or unbelieving, whether you are religious or not, it has passed into every human heart. Scottish theologian Ferguson Sinclair says, that original lie is akin to a dad taking their son to the great toy store and saying to their son, do you see all the toys here? Yes, daddy. Do you see all the toys over there? Yes, daddy, I do. Do you see all these amazing things over here? Yes, daddy, I do. And then that cruel dad saying, well, I brought you here not to buy you anything, but to show you everything that you're going to miss out on. You are getting none of this. We're going home. I get the chills just thinking about that image. But Ferguson Sinclair says, Genesis 3 says, at the heart of each of us, we actually believe that about God. That God's character is not for you, but against you. And if you don't understand that, then you won't understand yourself. You don't believe God has your best interests at heart. You believe he's never going to give you the things that you most want in life. And if that's the operating system, deep down, even if it's not showing up on the screen, it's operating in the background. You might negotiate with God. You might make a deal with God. I'll do this if you do that. And then you become bitter and angry because I have been obeying all this time. Now, God, you owe me. Where are you? You may negotiate with God. You might begrudgingly have a relationship with God because you have to, like being kind to a boss that you really don't like, but you know they have your paycheck. But you will never relate to the true God of love who knows you, created you, calls you his own, is delighted in you. As last week we saw, looks at you, smiles and says, you're very good. The original lie. And so we take matters into our own hands. We look out for ourselves. We act as though we're all alone on the island and no help is coming, and so it's really up to us. And we despair. We do damage to ourselves, and we do damage to others. We're exhausted and anxious. We become bitter and cold. This is a case study on the essence of sin. God says, do not eat. If you do, you'll die. They say, the serpent says, you surely won't die. You're only going to become better. So it goes even further. Because on, wrapped around that original lie, then, is this desire. 
Since you can't trust that God, you need to outdo that God. Since that God doesn't have your best interests at heart, you need to power up. You need to become like God. Now, this might sound facetious. It might sound like I'm exaggerating. But isn't that at the core of most of the marketing that you respond to? More bliss, happiness, more joy, more power, more status, more likability, more friends, better image. You could be in more places seemingly at once, more information. All of this is more, 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 more. You can be like God's. We drink it in, and we're still thirsty. The essence of sin is putting yourself in place of the God who created you. And then you become your own Savior and Lord. And the problem with that is it works until it doesn't. It works until it doesn't. We become like the proverbial baseball player who hits a grand slam home run, their first at bat. And what do you say to that person? You say, A, congratulations, it worked. B, your whole career is going to be downhill from here because life's way harder than you think it is after your first at bat. And so you hit that home run or you do that great thing or you get that awesome achievement. You make, you make it into the news and you begin to believe your own headlines. And then you realize you're still stuck with yourself your own limitations, your own fears, your own failures. I bring this up every now and then, and football season starting back up, and so the, you know, the football commercials are on TV, and I like to play this little game called Spot the Lie. You watch the, you watch the ad during the football game or whatever you're watching, and spot the lie that that thing is trying to sell you. The beer commercials are the best, right? If you drink enough Michelob Ultra, you will have perfect abs, be surrounded by amazingly beautiful people all the time, and have a 50-foot sailing yacht. So just drink Michelob Ultra all the time. Spot the lie, right? You gotta, so it becomes kind of funny. Until you realize that's actually a paradigm for the way we go through life. But it's more nuanced and more insidious. It digs more deeply into the human soul. Let me give you some examples. Can you spot the lie that drives you? When lust, whether it comes in the form of online or in relationships outside of the relationship you're committed to or just the way you have custody of your eyes and your mind when you're walking down the street, lust promises connection. And yet it leaves you more lonely. Spot the lie. Greed. Holding on to things, resources, finances. It promises security and stability. But the most bitter people I know are the people who don't share. And some of the most warm, connected, joyful, resilient people I know are people who give away their finances in great proportions, whether or not they have a lot or a little. Spot the lie. You know that substance abuse you go to any recovery group for any particular substance from alcohol to meth to shopping. And at first, it promises fun, a little escape, a vacation, a way to feel better about yourself. It becomes medicine. But then pretty soon, the medicine becomes the sickness itself. And you erode and you begin to come undone. Spot the lie. Pride. 
a view of yourself that you're better than others, whether or not you say it out loud, you think it, you operate that way, pride promises you importance and significance. Even the lower level of pride that scapegoats and judges other people, and so you say, I might not be the best in the world, but at least I'm not as bad as they are. It leaves you comparing and separated and isolated and lonely. In fact, the longer we operate according to pride, everyone around you knows something you might not know. You're really no fun to be around. See, all of us have blind spots, including me. That's why they're called blind spots. We need each other to point these things out. But from the very beginning, Genesis 3 is already walking in and saying, underneath all of this is the core. You think God's not looking out for you. You think God's untrustworthy. And so you take matters into your own hands. So diagnostic question. Where right now are you tempted to doubt that God will take care of you? Where right now are you living according to one of those lies? And how's it working out for you? A story as old as time. A story that relates to all of us. The core of sin. But then there's a corruption that follows after that. Alienation. Loss of relationship. Verses 7 through 9 go on to say, Then the eyes of both were open. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Earlier, it said they were naked and not ashamed. Comfortable in their own skin. Fully known and fully loved. Now, they're hiding. This ancient couple experienced what we've all experienced. Exposure. Despair shame can you relate it destroyed human relationship it, it started to break them down in every way where previously they'd walk with God in the cool of the afternoon now they're hiding from God we'll get into that in just a moment but there's this spiritual rift this part of the human soul like a homing beacon that knows it's supposed to be connected to the God that created it and yet this break between that relationship and we have been grasping back ever since. Whether you're a Christian or of a different faith or you're spiritual but not religious or an atheist or agnostic, wherever, at some point, have you ever had that experience that there's some deeper piece of your heart that says there has to be more than this? There's this grasping for the transcendence and yet never seem, seeming to be able to fully reach it. Spiritual alienation, psychological alienation, as I said, that used to be known, not afraid. There was no such thing as that fear of if they knew the truth about you, they'd run. Or that dear diary, I hope I don't get exposed. None of that for them. Fully known. Fully loved. Can you imagine? Dancing like no one's watching, even when everyone's watching. Because it's a good dance. And now they're hiding from each other. Pretty soon they'll be blame shifting. As this, not only spiritual alienation, psychological alienation, but then social alienation. Where relationships begin to break down. God comes to them and says, what did you do? Later in this chapter, Adam says, don't blame me, it was her. 
the very first blame shift. And she says, don't blame me, it was the serpent. And we've been blame shifting and scapegoating and identifying the other ever since to put all of our baggage on them because maybe we'll feel better. It doesn't take long until there's the first murder when Cain murders his brother Abel. And then pretty soon we see war among different factions of people. I had an incredible professor uh, of political science at the University of San Diego. He's passed away now. His name was John Stessinger. And he was one of these people where his life was... His life was like the movie Forrest Gump where you bring up any major event of the latter half of the 20th century and he goes, oh yeah, I was there. I was in the room, you know. He got into the room first in the Cuban Missile Crisis with John F. Kennedy because he had written his dissertation at Harvard for his PhD on communism. And so when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened as a communist country in Cuba, JFK wanted a uh, communist expert there John Stessinger was in. He was in the situation room for all of that. And then he talks about meeting Nelson Mandela and Henry Kissinger and on and on and on and on. He wrote this book that's now in its 11th edition called Why Nations Go to War. And at the core of it, he says, nations go to war because leaders have an issue with their soul. This is me paraphrasing him. This is not him writing as a pastor or as a, as a theologian. This is him writing as a scholar, a world-class scholar. But what he's saying is the seed of corruption that was sown in Genesis 3 and the way that it erodes your soul and mine when magnified through power and connection and ambition and violence leads to war. It actually makes sense of the world that we see around us. This is the sort of corruption that Scripture tells us about. C.S. Lewis talks about the breathtaking honesty of the Bible, and he says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by its light I can see everything else. Is your worldview nuanced enough to explain why there's both a beautiful world and a broken world? Look at Genesis 3. A good God's created a world that's been fractured. They hid themselves from his presence. And into this situation, God speaks and says, where are you? Shortly after this, God will promise to do something about it. In verse 15, which is not printed for you, God says, though you are in the state of brokenness, there will be a descendant who will come. The serpent will strike at his heel and he will strike at its head. This descendant will come and be affected by the brokenness of this world, but he will ultimately conquer everything. And in Jesus Christ, he comes and says, I'm coming myself. Into the pain, into the shame, into the alienation, in here and out there, which leads to the correction of this brokenness. God walks into that moment in the garden when things are looking really bad, where it seems like the story might be over. Can you imagine that? The Bible ending with only three chapters and ending with, and so they lived in cold and darkness for the rest of their lives. But that's not the way it ends. Even the passage Sarah read for us ends with God coming and saying, where are you? 
St. Augustine talks about the lostness. St. Augustine, that African theologian from the fourth century, says the human soul is in curvitus in se, which is Latin for saying curved in on itself. My dad joke is he's saying we have scoliosis. Forgive it. Thank you, Sarah. The human soul is curved in on itself, feeding on itself, always eating but always starving. And into that God it comes and says, where are you? You know, we hide and we numb ourselves in 10,000 ways through being more busy, through getting more drink or whatever your favorite pastime is, through more work, or the religious version of it is through piling on more spiritual platitudes. And so you know more Bible verses than other people or more church history than other people, and that's the way you camouflage the brokenness that's underneath everything. We immerse ourselves in a different drama, whether it's the drama of football or The Apprentice or neighborhood gossip. We'll take any story we can and try to insert ourselves in that so we don't have to face our own story to avoid our own inner drama. We get mad at others and scapegoat them, and we externalize our problems and say, if we could just fix them, then we'd be okay. Hiding and scapegoating are as old as Genesis chapter 3. And into that God says, where are you? Now because of technology and the way that messages dominate our psyche, you can be anywhere in the world right now online. And ironically, while you're doing that, you are everywhere but right here. You can be driving in your car, driving home from work, and simultaneously holding a tough conversation you had with a loved one while scanning social media and seeing how many likes you have, while thinking about your calendar, realizing there's a social media post that you want to make, and listening to the radio. You can be in five places at once. Where are you? Therapists and psychologists will tell us most of us spend our time either regretting the past or fearing the future. But the one place you are not is right here, right now which is where God wants to meet you. He comes and says, where are you? I'll tell you, my therapist says to me as we're planting this church, he says, he knows me well, he's known me for 10 years. Matt, I know. He says, tell me if I'm right. You think once the church reaches a certain amount of impact or a certain size or a certain age or is financially self-sustaining or reaches this certain benchmark then life will begin and the great adventure will continue. And I said, yeah, I, if I'm being honest, the answer is yes. And he goes, but life's happening right now. Look around. In other words, he said, where are you? <laughs> because God's right here. That's your invitation today. And that's mine. But he goes further. Because he not only asks, where are you? He does not wait for you to identify. And then he says, well, then come start walking toward me and meet me halfway. 
he rushes toward you. God comes down, Jesus Christ in the flesh, searching and rescuing and undoing the brokenness of all of it. You know, we're going to close pretty soon, so I don't have time to go through this, but I encourage you, look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus' life. Every time he heals somebody, every time he forgives somebody, Every time he sees someone on the outside of society that no one else sees and he brings them to the middle of the community to reunite them with other people around them. What is that? That is a full frontal assault on everything that's been broken. Jesus' ministry on earth was putting things back together after things had tragically fallen apart. And he goes even further because he reverses the work of the serpent. There's this scene in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark and others. He's in the wilderness. This is in Luke chapter 4 as well. When the adversary, Satan, the serpent, the devil, whatever you want to call it, comes to him and tempts him and says, I bet you're pretty hungry. You're in the desert. You haven't eaten. If you're hungry, command this bread, these stones to become bread. Then you'll eat. He challenges his identity. If you really are the Son of God then prove it. The difference is where the first Adam failed and was unfaithful, Jesus, the second Adam, was completely faithful. Everywhere that you and I have believed the lie and wandered, Jesus was faithful on our behalf. He goes even further. Years later, the night before he was betrayed, in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is having this conversation with God the Father, and and Jesus says, take this cup from me, the cup representing the death he would die on the cross the next day, take this away from me. If there's any way, take it. And the Father said, no. This is the way we will win them back. The first couple in the garden said, no. My will be done. But Jesus, the new Adam, said, Thy will be done. And he drank it to the bottom. The second Adam, in Gethsemane, God says, Obey me about the tree, the cross. And on that cross, Jesus took all the effects of the fall disconnected from the Father as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus, you have God who knows what it's like to feel that God's not there. He understands you. You have Jesus literally stripped naked and exposed before the world. Jesus abandoned and left behind by his closest friends, indeed, even betrayed by Peter, his very closest friend. I do not know him. Jesus, who experiences the effects of environmental alienation as the very cells in his body begin to revolt before he gives up his last breath and says, it is finished. You see, God sees the brokenness of your life in this world and says, where are you? And then doesn't wait for you and me to respond, but says, I'll move first. You feel the effects of your brokenness, so do I. And I'm doing something about it. He took the result of our own rebellion so we don't have to. 
And three days later, in his resurrection, he reveals that he has dealt a death blow to death itself, inviting us to new creation. And so I'll close with this. Listen to this new vision that he gives. Because as you read through scripture, the first picture begins in a garden with this tree. And there's brokenness, and there's fracturedness, and there's a promise to restore, and there's his death and resurrection, but it ends in a garden in the middle of a city with a tree. Did you ever notice that? Listen to Revelation chapter 21. This is the closing pages of scripture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice coming from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death itself will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. I saw no temple in that city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb of God. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. He was applying what we just heard. That though this world is both beautiful and broken, it is going somewhere. It's going towards healing. And in order to believe and trust that, why should we trust that God loves you this much? He says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at him on the cross saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will go to any length to make these things right. Look at the empty tomb of the resurrection that shows he is not merely a well-intentioned religious leader, but he actually has power over sin and death to do something about it. And when you do, that enables you not only to face the difficulty and confusion in your own life and in this world, but it makes you a person who walks toward others in the midst of their need. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray as we hear these ancient words that you would make them new and fresh to us now. And so however we find ourselves this morning, help us to hear your words asking us, where are you? There is no need to hide. I know you. I love you. I'm moving toward you now. Help us to hear that voice and respond with courage, with grace. We pray in your name. Amen.